From the hills of central New York and in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. My guest on this episode of Frankly Speaking is Dr. Jim Brosnan, Associate Professor of Turfgrass Weed Science at the University of Tennessee. Jim got his degrees at UMass and PhD at Old Penn State University. He was recently awarded the William H. Daniel Founder Award from the Sports Turf Managers Association, which recognizes an individual's made significant contribution to the industry through research, teaching, and extension. Our regular listeners will recognize Jim as part of the Resistance Radio program we ran a few years ago with his pal, Dr. Ben McGraw, discussing pest resistance and its impact on golf turf management, in addition to discussion of the domination of New England sports teams. I sat down with Jim recently to discuss the weather, new herbicide chemistry, annual bluegrass, and the recent glyphosate controversy and how the land-grant institutions will be responding. As with all our Frankly Speaking episodes, we're grateful to our partners at Trijack and Intelligram. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking, Jim Brosnan. Uh, you are, as your usual prolific self, writing, publishing in the scientific literature, and you've really got a nice couple of articles that I've noticed over the last few years uh, in Sports Turf magazine. And boy, it really is uh, nice to have that avenue to do extension work. And your most recent sorts of things, I think it really laid a foundation for our conversation today. And we'll have that without your degenerate New England sports fan pal from uh, Pennsylvania. We had an episode with him recently. Uh, we've decided to break you two up. It was just too much for this New York sports fan all at once. So, Jim, back to the issue here. I've noticed that you're paying a lot more attention to the weather. Uh, I notice it on your website. I notice it in the things that you write about. What's going on? Why you feel like all of a sudden now it's starting to emerge as a more important piece of data that we're tracking in, in a more detailed way from a weed science perspective? Well, sure. I mean, it, 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 it's definitely something that has become more of an interest for me and I think others in the scientific community as well serving the turfgrass industry. And, and I don't know so much as it's an interest in the weather, Frank, as it's more trying to be more precise with how we go about managing pests of turfgrass or even just turfgrass management in general. You know, one of the things I think on the weed science side is that as we've had more cases of resistant weeds and just difficulty in controlling weeds and weed species shifts, right, where, you know, some species that were more problematic in the southern U.S. are now migrating north, mm-hmm. that kind of puts us in a position where we need to get more precise with what we're doing and we can use environmental data to do that. So one of the things that we've tried to do a lot here in Tennessee is is track that and provide resources for turfgrass managers to use that sort of data in decision making. You know, my colleague and your former student, Dr. Bill Kreuzer at Nebraska, as you know, he kind of pioneered this with PGR applications, redefining when to make sequential applications of PGRs. And I think it's really kind of snowballed from there into other areas of turfgrass management, and weed science is certainly a part of that. And I'm assuming that now you're imagining back to when Mike Fidanza did some of the growing degree day stuff for crabgrass emergence and and maybe uh, flowering times or times that when weed might be more susceptible to uh, something that's not a chemical agent, something that might in fact be a biological agent. And in addition, 
addition to the enhanced precision, I'm assuming you you're, you you think it's going to allow us to more uh, accurately predict and and sort of utilize alternative technologies with this data. Yeah, a hundred percent. And and I think, and honestly, that's probably the real goal here is to find the window of opportunity where what we're going to do from a weed management standpoint, whether it's a chemical application or a mechanical treatment or something different, is going to be the most impactful, right? And, you know, you bring up Mike Finanza's work from years ago with, with tracking crabgrass emergence using growing degree days, and we now have the technology data processing-wise and data analytics-wise where, you know, that work was done at the time looking at the high temperature for the day and the low temperature for the day, right? And that's how we were getting the growing degree days for the day, we have the ability to look at growing degree day accumulation within the hour Mm -hmm. and looking at changes in heat accumulation in the hour throughout a course of a day over the course of a week. And this has really helped improve the modeling side. And, you know, I can't really speak to the nuts and bolts because I'm not a data scientist, but I know the work being done is really impressive. Um, For example, you know, Dr. Matt Elmore at Rutgers former student of mine has been working for two years on a goosegrass emergence model with multiple sites in New Jersey, not only at their uh, research farm at Rutgers, but golf course sites as well. And they've used this approach kind of looking at heating units and cooling units within the hour of a day summed over time to have a really nice uh, model of accurately predicting when they'll see a first flush of goosegrass in New Jersey turf. It just seems to me like the only thing this weather data needs is somebody to ground through it. And it and it almost is like what Matt is doing with emergence. And I thought you said it was cooling units or co- the differences in cooling units that occurs over time. That ability to sort of mine the data in a different way is going to be good for research. But I think what I like about what you've done to your website is, and is certainly what you've done with the measure.io guys, is make it really user-friendly to look at. And and my sense is guys have to get start getting comfortable with looking at that data and, and knowing how to maybe uh, tweeze it apart uh, to get that precision. Do you see anybody in the field starting to do that? Any practitioners yet? I think we're getting there. You know, I mean, I think there's an awareness of growing degree days amongst turfgrass managers, particularly in the golf industry. Uh, and PGR apps have, have certainly driven that. I, I think though our challenge as extension professionals and, and scientists working to give those turfgrass managers extension deliverables, if you will, is to do it in that in that way where it can be prescriptive and user friendly, where. You know, no golf course superintendent is going to go in and look at the hourly ratio of (laughs) growing degree day to cooling degree day units at their golf course. They just have too much to do and too many responsibilities. But if we can do the research to understand what changes in that data mean, whether it's from a biological standpoint or something different, and then present it in a way that's user-friendly and can be prescriptive, then that's a home run. I mean, uh, you know, Bill's work with, with Greenkeeper has certainly helped on the PGR side with that, and I think that's just kind of the, the tipping point. You know, on the disease side with the Smith-Kearns dollar spot model, I know that the adoption of that um, has been pretty widespread mm-hmm. in the industry and really impactful in helping people with minimizing um, applications for dollar spots so right. it's such that they're only applying when the timing is optimal mm-hmm. and 
uh, for me, that's just where we're going. Well, and, and since you've brought up the sort of integration of the models and the use of pest control procedures, it's a natural segue, Jim, into the new herbicides uh, that have come to the market, uh, Vexis, Relzar, I think it's Game On, Switchblade, Dismiss, NXT. You know, looking at these products that maybe got launched last year, I don't see new chemistry. I see new molecules in the same chemistry. First, let's talk for a minute. What are some of these new products bringing to the table that maybe we don't have on the table now, especially in your neck of the woods where uh, weed pressure is is most severe? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly been a lot of development of what's called air quotes, new things, right? We have not had a, a true new mode of action, as you've you noted, uh, in a long time. But we do have new tools in the industry that utilize existing modes of action for weed control. So, you know, you mentioned Vexus. That's an ALS inhibiting herbicide. One of the things that's unique there is that, you know, there's safety in warm season turf and cool season turf. Um, you know, usually the ALS inhibitors in large part are warm season molecules with a handful of exceptions. So having something in the cool season market there is is useful. That's a herbicide with a lot of activity on sedge and Kalinga, which certainly have become more problematic, particularly as you've gotten up into the mid-Atlantic and even the Northeast now uh, as a target weed. So to have more tools there certainly matters. And is that a granular formulation, Jim? Yes. So, I mean, the the work that's been done kind of introducing it into the industry has been on a granular carrier. And what we have done a lot of work with here at Tennessee is a mixture of Vexus uh, and Panoxylum, which will be, I think, trade named Athon. Uh, and that's not only on a granular carrier, but is a weed and feed as well. So there's there's uh, nitrogen on the prill to go along with the herbicide. And there's some benefits to that, as you well know. You know, if you think about a weed like clover, for example, that's going to be an indicator of low nitrogen fertility. We have the herbicide that can come in that can remove that clover. And then we're also going to be delivering some nitrogen that will make that turf stand less susceptible to future clover infestation. And what does Panoxylum bring to the table that Vexus doesn't have? So that widens the spectrum, right? So, uh, you know, Vexus is, is, there's a little bit of broadleaf weed activity there. The work that we have done, at least, has been predominantly sedge and Kalinga control with it. So it allows an application to control more weeds with one app, right? And that's where the panoxylum has been really helpful for us. But that will be a southern product only because panoxylum can be injurious to cool season grasses. I know that PBI Gordon is working with other researchers like myself to formulate mixtures with Vexus for more northern geographies where we have, you know, stands of bluegrass, fescue, and ryegrass commingled together. So the Relzar product looks interesting uh, in the sense that it might be an option for people trying to avoid 2,4-D. Yeah, and, you know, Relzar would be one and Switchblade would be another. Those are both going to be broadleaf products without 2,4-D in them, trying to do kind of the same things that a 2,4-D broadleaf mixture would do, but without the D. And we live in a regulatory world, and I'd say that there's a lot of scrutiny on on herbicides and chemistry in general, and and we can go as deep down that rabbit hole as you want to go. But to be proactive and thinking about, well, 
we know that we need to be able to meet these objectives, and maybe there's a, a world out there where we won't have some of the tools trying to develop new tools to meet the same objectives, I think makes some sense. And in wrapping up the new chemistry, I was fascinated by uh, this dismiss NXT. You know, you said it earlier, and it's for sure, and Matt Elmore's work reflects it, that Kylinga and Sedges are a growing issue uh, further and further north where we're not used to having to make as many multiple applications as we're making here. So the addition of Carfentrazone in there, like in the Speed Zone, Power Zone products, seems to be an interesting addition. Is it really just to uh, accelerate the activity like it is, or at least the visual activity, or does it also broaden and heighten the uh, effect? Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, with NXT products, the takeaway is the speed, right? You know, you think about the other tools we have for sedge and Kalinga control. Most of those are ALS inhibiting herbicides, whether it's a, a sedge hammer or a Solero or what have you. And those products, just by the nature of how they work, work relatively slowly. Um, you know, we were talking about maybe 14 days or more to see a response. And the NXT side of it, it's it's very rapid. I mean, I can remember several years at the golf industry show, the FMC folks had a, a live plant demo at their booth with plants that had been treated at different timings to highlight how quickly you would see the onset of those symptoms. So, you know, I think in the in the lawn care industry, for example, you know, if you have a, a, a client that wants to know you've been to that property and, and you've done something, mm-hmm. you know, that is certainly going to be a a fit in that scenario. And also the thing, I think it's good for the industry too, that we're looking at granular products going back to Vexus for a minute that, you know, you just think about the optics of particularly in lawn care, you're out there and maybe you're spraying off the back of a truck with a hose end applicator, or even if you have a backpack on in today's world, we can argue the optics of that being good or bad, but I definitely don't think they're ideal putting out a granular tool that can be effective because that's always been the knock on the granular products is they're not as effective as the liquid sprays. If we can put out a granular tool that's going to be effective, I think that's good for the future of the business. I, I do, as long as they sweep it up when they when it spills on the pavement. Uh, 100%. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So listen, let me, let's take a break here. I'm with Associate Professor of Turfgrass Weed Science at the University of Tennessee, my pal Jim Brosnan. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back after a message from our partners at Dryject and Intelligrow. Golf course superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming, labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest Dryject service center. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. 
By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear in traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. All right, Jim, welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Uh, Associate Professor Jim Brosnan, the University of Tennessee is with me. And Jim, you wrote about some of the work you're starting to do ecologically with annual bluegrass or poa annua. Most likely as you're dealing with it, I'm going to assume is primarily the winter annual type, but I would imagine some degree of perenniality has uh, has slipped in. And, and your most recent writings talked about the differentiation you're finding across the state of Tennessee. Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing with annual bluegrass, Jim, that you studied so far down there? Yeah, sure. I mean, you're you're definitely right about most of our poa being the annual biotype. We do have some reptans in the southeast, but by and large, when we talk about poa down here, it is it is the annual biotype uh, infesting dormant warm season grasses. And you know, the, the project that that you referenced in that article has been one of the more fun projects for us as a as a group here uh, in a long time. We were lucky to receive some funding from GCSAA, EIFG, and our state. GCSAA chapter to go through the state and, and survey annual bluegrass populations. And this has been a lot of work, but it's yielding, I think, really meaningful data for the golf industry that can be a jumping off point for the future, whether it's in Tennessee or in other states, because it's giving us a real feel for like what's going on. You know, there's been chatter about poets harder to control, resistance problems for a while, but it's all kind of case-by-case basis type chatter where, you know, this this course has it or this superintendent saw it. Mm-hmm. So to get some statewide numbers, we felt would be important. So what we did was we took 90 golf courses in our state, was our target to get to, and we divided the state into three regions, east, middle, and west. And the key here was to do everything at random because that would allow us to get real numbers on percent resistant, right? Because to get a true percent of the whole, you have to kind of sample the whole, which means you'd be sampling some populations that are resistant and some that are susceptible. So we took 30 golf courses in each region. We, and to do that, we took all the golf courses that had Bermuda and Zoysia grass fairways. We put them into a pool and we randomly picked out of that pool until we got to 30 in the east, 30 in the middle, and 30 in the west. Mm-hmm. And when we went to those golf courses, we randomly picked a hole using a random number generator from 1 to 18 at the golf course. We walked that hole, and we collected any plants that were present over a density of, I believe, 10 plants per square meter. Mm -hmm. And we collected what was there, and we brought those back to our greenhouses on campus and got to work. What was interesting is that... You know, of the 90 courses where we did this, we visited them between January 1st and February 14th, 2018. So that's a pretty tight time window to visit 90 golf courses, but we were able to get it done through a pretty good team effort. 87% of the courses we visited had enough POA to collect. And that that says a lot, right? So that speaks about the efficacy of control programs and just the current state of being able to keep 
golf courses free of POA in the wintertime. So to stop you there for a second, 87% had POA you could sample, which is suggesting that the POA control programs are breaking down if you have no problem finding 10 plants per square meter. Uh, that means uh, the majority, almost 90% of the programs are breaking down in one way, shape, or form. Correct. Yeah, so that was a staggering number. <laughs> that is us. a staggering number. Um, <laughs> so we brought those back. We started, uh, we collected seed off of everything to get this big lots of seeds. So you can think we've got 90 or so populations uh, of annual bluegrass seed now to re- represent a diversity of golf courses across the state. Uh, so coming from Bermuda grass or zoysia grass golf courses, uh, of varying maintenance budgets, varying whether it's private golf or public golf, um, varying maintenance programs, a lot of, lot of just inherent variability there to kind of catalog the state. We looked at this, you know, we, we, and I'm not going to get into the details today, but we saw differences in time to germination amongst the populations. We saw differences in the rate at which those populations grew from seed, so seedling vigor. And that speaks going back to where we started our conversation to if things are germinating at a different time and growing faster from seed, well, then having some models to optimize that and better understand environmental parameters that are causing that to happen can lead to better management down the road. So if you had to guess of that 87% that obviously things aren't working, would you say that based on some of your preliminary evidence that timing is a contributing factor that somehow now this plant is behaving slightly different than what we thought and our old recommendations and practices used to be? I think so, but I don't think it's a major one because we went through and then so far we've screened all of these populations for resistance to glyphosate, for resistance to barricade, and resistance to revolver to get a feel for levels of resistance just within the state. It's been interesting. So we went through and and through the process of doing this, you know, you think about you have 100 seedlings and you spray 100 seedlings and you get percent survival. So, I mean, at some level that's, you know, 100 reps of the same application. 64% of the POA in our state had some level of glyphosate resistance. 58% of the POA in our state had some level of barricade resistance. And 21% of the POA in our state had some level of resistance to revolver. And you don't have any of the screening tools yet. I know you've got that really cool DNA resistance screening tool that you've been using. Are you doing any of the cross resistance or multiple resistance tests to see if there's any across both of these? Not yet, but that is a bigger part. So this has been kind of a pilot study for our state that's a building block for a larger national project that's funded by the USDA Specialty Crops Research Initiative that uh, Tennessee is involved in, along with 14 other states, looking at this issue. You know, we we call it an epidemic yeah. of herbicide resistance in annual bluegrass mm-hmm. nationwide, not only in golf, but in sports turf, in lawn care, and in sod production, and going from target site resistance to multiple or cross resistance in the non-target site is part of that endeavor. Okay. So I'm so glad you brought that up and, and I'm going to introduce that project later on. But what I wanted to ask you again is back to this 90% not working so good. It's not timing. You've gone through resistance. 
Listen, Jim, you know, like I know, growing up in the Northeast, and if you look at any turf history book over the last 120 years, we've been trying to deal with annual meadowgrass or annual bluegrass or poa or po, poana, whatever people call it, for generations of, of turfgrass managers. So now it sounds like you guys are identifying resistance as a factor. But again, it's not just that, oh, we're not controlling these. These 87% programs aren't working because it's resistance. These 87% programs aren't working because maybe annual bluegrass, I don't want to say becomes resistant, but we've missed it forever. How much is resistance explaining what we've known to be a big problem for generations. Yeah, I mean, and I'm not really sure how to answer that. I I think for us, the goal of this has been to provide our superintendents in Tennessee real numbers on the extent of the problem Mm -hmm. with a hope that it will facilitate a change in approach. Mm -hmm. I call on far too many golf courses that have used glyphosate for 10 years in a row during winter dormancy or have used barricade for 10 years in a row and you know you go to these places and you you know you're an extension professional too Frank and you know you know how these conversations go and you talk about well we've got a lot of resistance problems out there and you should really think about changing and that's a hard buy-in when you've been doing the same thing over time and you don't have any real numbers. And it's probably not going to be 100% impactful, but our hope here is if we can say in front of extension audiences, look, we know that 64% of the POA in the state is resistant to glyphosate. So that's a big number. That's a big number. And furthermore, this is the pivot point now. If you know you have part of this population and one of the services, you know, obviously like the ag industry did many years ago with atrazine resistant lamb's quarter and pigweed and things like that, they developed rapid screening tools and then immediately moved them to different chemistry. Are there viable options for POA control that don't include a DNA pre-emergent and something like Roundup? There are, is the short answer to that question. Some of them, from an economical standpoint, are challenging for clubs to use because they've been using lower price point products for a long time. So that's a stumbling block. But one of the key messages that we're trying to drive home extension-wise is that we want you to be diversifying what you're doing so you're not selecting for resistance on your golf course. But the answer to a resistance problem is not going to come from a jug. And a jug can be part of it, right? But it it can't be all of it. And the hope here is to just drive the superintendents to think more critically about this topic, because we know from looking at row crop agriculture, when this goes off the rails, it goes way off the rails. And and it's really hard to come back into that. So yeah, there there are things that can be sprayed. It's, It's a limited suite. One of the things, you know, we talked earlier about new products. And one of the things I think we're seeing in new product development is we don't have a lot of new modes of action coming because you know, for the herbicide physiologist to tell you, the easy ones have already been discovered. I mean, there's a great mm-hmm. pest management science paper by Steve Duke and his team back in 2013 that talks about, we've found the easy targets. The ones that are left are really, really difficult, mm-hmm. and that's been a big driver. So 
a lot of what we're seeing now to try to help with resistance issues in the southeast are going back to older materials and older modes of action that are not as widely used. And that's where I'll say what I was fishing for earlier to lead you back to the wonderful uh, annual bluegrass project that you're working on was that the answer really is going to be from uh, a broad-based approach, just like you took in sort of sampling and looking at the state. These 16 scientists from 15 universities just got a four-year, $5.7 million grant. Uh, and I love the fact that you use the word epidemic because, of course, your data would support that, at least even in your state, it's a be- epidemic level. So, Jim... Tell me about what the heck all you really bright young folks are working on for this $5.7 million beyond just understanding the resistance. This project is awesome, and I think everyone that's involved would echo that, that we are all excited to be involved. And at some level, I mean, I'm honored to be involved because for the USDA to fund a turf grass problem like this, that's really big for us in turf grass moving forward. And it's, you know, we're charged now with doing a really good job and providing a good deliverable to make their investment worthwhile. And I know we're all committed to doing that. You know, the, the, it's certainly multifaceted and, and it's underway. You know, the, the first step in this is, is collecting plant materials. So there's been a really robust effort amongst all the states to go collect populations that are troublesome, that we, we either know are resistant or are escapes from treatment or just historically hard populations to control. Start screening those for resistance. And if they pass those screens, they're going to go through a genetic analysis in Scott McElroy's lab down in Auburn. And then if they don't come back with any hits for target site resistance, or even if they do, many of those will be advanced over to Travis Cannon and Patrick McCullough for non-target site resistance analysis as well. And, you know, and that'll help us kind of identify hot spots and understand what modes of action do we have the most problems with and does that vary regionally across the country. But it's so much more than that. You know, that that's really objective number one. I mean, there are components of this project far and wide that are really designed to get us an integrated management. You know, one of the things we've been working on here uh, in Tennessee in collaboration with Georgia, Mississippi, and Indiana is a study looking at annual bluegrass flowering. And we are going out to plots and collecting annual bluegrass seed heads on a growing degree day time course over the spring. And we collect that seed, we'll then fertilize that seed, and then germinate that seed with the hope of identifying, well, what's the window of opportunity where we know that annual bluegrass seed in the spring is, is most viable for germination? Because that might be a time where I could come in and collect clippings and prevent that seed from being redeposited back into the soil, therefore perpetuating a problem. Phrase mowing has been a part of this. You know, we've got a study lined out for the next two years with our group here in Tennessee and Brian Unruh's group at the University of Florida looking at phrase mowing as a tool for annual bluegrass control. Harvesting the seed bank. Correct. Yeah, harvesting the seed bank at different depths to try to see if we can deplete the soil seed bank of annual bluegrass seed from that mechanical process. Yeah, so listen, Jim, I I wanted to draw attention to that project, but I want to wrap up this little segment here by asking you something that maybe isn't pertinent at all, and then we'll end the segment even earlier than that. 
But you were at Penn State when Dave Huff was probably collecting and doing a lot of his annual bluegrass stuff, were you? I was, yeah. And his graduate student, John Lamania, who worked on that extensively, we were actually office mates together. Right. Okay. So I do recall that properly. So that's my question. I mean, certainly David Huff has published some of the most scholarly work on the sort of evolution of annual bluegrass as a species. And of course, you know, I used to teach about annual bluegrass you know, 20 something years ago at the national level, it took me three full day seminars to teach ecology, biology and management back when you used to do that sort of lengthy seminar thing. And we'd rely on things from Vic Yugner from the 70s at Riverside, you know, who was Vic Jabot's major professor. And Mary Lush did this work in Australia. She did some of the early Poanya work. I guess this is a long way of asking, has much of the work that's gone on in the golf end, you know, from all the people I just mentioned, getting us a little bit further down the road with this in, in understanding the wide variation that we're seeing, or are they so completely distinctly different species between maybe the greens type and managed type on a golf course versus what we see as a weed that maybe there isn't any cross-pollination there? No, I mean, I definitely think that that work is a really rock-solid baseline for future research. I mean, we'd be lost if we didn't have those building blocks on how to design new experiments to better understand this problem. I mean, so those are some of the building block pieces of work that you referenced that, that, are, or that are needed to drive kind of the research machine forward. And, you know, I think one of the big takeaways, particularly with what John Lemania and Dave Huff did, is just shows how, how plastic, essentially, POA is and its ability to adapt to different management conditions, which goes all the way full circle back to diversified management, that if we're only doing one thing to try to manage the species as a weed, it's going to adapt to what we're doing, right? Wow. And we, we have really good data, as you noted, to show that down to the genetic level. So certainly I think that that work is important in terms of helping us better understand what's going on. Okay. Associate Professor of Turfgrass Weed Science at the University of Tennessee, Jim Brosnan. I'm Frank Rossi. We're going to take a message here from Dryject and Intelligrow, and then we'll be right back and wrap up our conversation. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear in traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. Golf course superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you. There and gone before you know it. Dryject. 
the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest dryject service center. Welcome back, Jim. I want to go to something that was written about in your proposal for the USDA project we just wrapped up on, and it is the International Survey of Herbicide-Resistant Weeds. Annual bluegrass ranks third among all herbicide-resistant weed species globally and resistance to at least nine different herbicide modes of action. So as if chemicals don't have a bad enough rap, Obviously, annual bluegrass and the intersection of intense chemical use obviously is coming under scrutiny. And now as scientists, we're responding to it. Now, you and I know as trained weed scientists, there really is a very little separation between the chemical industry and and weed science as an academic discipline. I mean, there's weed ecology and plant ecology and plant physiology. There's a variety of things that we do that aren't sort of related to chemicals, but obviously we know it's grounded in chemicals. The hot topic these days among weed scientists and what you and I have been discussing offline in our professional jobs as extension people is the concern that the public has raised about Roundup, the recent uh, litigation that provided pretty substantial cash awards to people who were supposedly using it following label directions. And now, as we've discussed, and I'd like you to tell the story about what happens when we can be viewed as complicit by making recommendations for products that now a court of law has determined could cause injury and make people in a string of people uh, liable. That's a big, long intro, Jim, to a problem I know uh, you're dealing with head on right now. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think there's not a weed scientist in the country, turf or otherwise, who works in extension that has not dealt with this in the past six to 18 months at some level. I know that, you know, going out and giving talks, I certainly get questions about it. My colleagues who work in row crop agriculture give talks, will go out and speak on something completely different, and, and you know, 60% of the questions are on Roundup. And there's no easy answer here. I mean, it's certainly one of those things that the WSSA, the Weed Science Society of America, they just formed a new subcommittee to kind of formulate a position on this. And I was honored to be part of that subcommittee representing turf grass. And, you know, the message there, and I think that this is a good message, is we need to skate our lane, so to speak. That, Mm. you know, as weed scientists, we look at the interaction between herbicide and plants. We can speak in depth about that interaction, but we are not toxicologists. And the issue of herbicides affecting humans becomes a toxicological issue and not a biological issue when we work in biology. So that's that's really been, you know, a driving message and you know, that's led to WSSA, as I said, formulating a position which is still not done yet and, and not uh, available, but when it is, I'm sure they'll, they'll promote it through all their channels. And we've tried to do it as an extension group here, and we're in the process of drafting one as well, that, you know, at long story short, the feeling amongst us as weed science faculty is you know, we believe in the regulatory process, and the regulatory process with the United States EPA requires products to be reviewed, not only for their biological efficacy, but by people trained in toxicology to see their toxicological profile. And there's a re-registration process where products are reviewed 
for their life history using the most current methodology to ensure that they are not going to be harmful when used appropriately. And, and we support that process, and we support sound science behind it, and, and therefore you know, have no issues with people using Roundup in our state when they're using it for labeled activities. So it sounds like all the interaction we've had about this topic in a variety of, of different settings, I think your clarification of uh, staying in your lane or skating in your lane is a good one. But it does speak when we go out to the broader skepticism and assault uh, that's underway on science and the facts. And so while you and I say we put our trust in the regulatory system to properly scrutinize these products, you and I also know that we live in a world where that doesn't necessarily imply the same purity of intention than maybe it used to imply. Wouldn't you say to a certain extent, thinking uh, philosophically here, that this is sort of an indication of, of something broader and more complex for us to address? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think so. And, you know, our job as scientists is to try to make people aware of scientific facts. And then I think, you know, the regulatory arm that supports the industry is not the greatest at self-promotion. You know, if you dig in, you can find a December 2017 report from the EPA declaring that Roundup is not carcinogenic to human beings. And it goes through all of the research that's been done. And they're you know, when we think about glyphosate, it's one of the most, if not if not the most, well-studied herbicide on planet Earth. And they have gone through, the EPA has, all of the data that's available, and they conclude that it's not carcinogenic. But you have to dig through Google to find that document, right? That's not something that's right out there in public in front of people so they can have that information easily available to them. And, you know, one can make an argument. It might not be formatted in a way that's as digestible as well. So, I mean, one of the approaches that we're trying to take as an extension group, and I know other universities are as well, is to distill some of that information down into a deliverable that can be more user-friendly, that can help, whether it's an extension agent or even just a citizen, better understand the situation. Do you see now, as we wrap up, what the future holds for weed science. Weed control has historically been tied up very closely with uh, chemical management. Are you hopeful that the kind of stuff you do with Daniel Bluegrass will take on crabgrass next and then goosegrass after that to be able to create opportunities for non-chemical approaches? Uh, absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, goosegrass and crabgrass are definitely the next candidate. Sedge would be another you know, going back to where we started the conversation, the, the modeling work, you know, we live in a big data world, and we have all of this environmental data and the ability to track it with granularity that is staggering. We can do this. We just have to do the work to better understand how weed species are responding to changes in the environment to design programs to optimally control them in that they can be implemented when the plants are going to be most susceptible to those treatments. And I think, I kind of think that's where everything is going to be headed and it's going to take a long time to get there. But, you know, that's going to be true for a chemical spray, but to, 
you know, something like phrase mowing or, you know, you, you look at Jason Henderson at, at UConn. He's been doing some nice work with mechanical control of broadleaf weeds in Kentucky bluegrass. I mean, I think there are other ways to do this. I don't know what those are, but, you know, our job as scientists is to kind of look forward and, and be open-minded about what could be possible. Well, Jim, thank you so much for talking with us, and we hope to have you back on Frankly Speaking. And congratulations on the Daniels Award from the STMA. All right, anytime, Frank. I, lo- I love coming on. Anytime, uh, I'd be happy to do it. Dr. Jim Brosnan, Associate Professor of Turfgrass Weed Science at the University of Tennessee, has been a leading voice in the turfgrass weed science community through his contributions in research and extension education. He maintains a weed science website at tennesseeturfgrassweeds.org. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryjack, the only machine that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass, and Intelligro, makers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. Frankly Speaking is recorded and produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to program manager Eleanor Geddes, marketing and business management John Kiger, and executive producer Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me. <laughs>